We're going to turn to the gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. We're going to read about Mary, and I think that you will find that our theme and observations about Mary's life dovetail very nicely with what Leanne just is willing to share with us here this morning. Let's read together. In the month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you put your hand on our lives at just the right time and just the right ways. We acknowledge that you are the God of all creation and that your plans sometimes greatly surprise us the way that you work. The Christmas story, the, the narratives about Jesus' birth continue to amaze us. We wonder why you chose to operate this way. We marvel over the way that we are all touched and drawn into the story of God coming in, in the form of a, a little child. And yet, we find it mysterious. We can't explain exactly how you did it. But we also know that we're drawn to Jesus. And we know that there's great power that comes from putting our faith and our trust in him. God, we ask that you will walk with each of us. You know the folks in this congregation who might be in the midst of a storm today who need to know that your life-calming peace is available, who need to know that you have the ability to redirect events and use bad things for good, who need to know that you are a God who does not forget your own and does not give up on us, even when we go through the hardest chapters of life. Grant us wisdom today and insight so that we would see what you want us to see in your word Give us hearts that are open to the way that you communicate to us. Give us ears to hear if, 
if there's a whisper that you will give or a nudge that you will push us with that leads us into a, a new direction or to take a new step or to take on a new challenge. Thank you for being the God who forgives our sins as often as we confess them to you. Thank you for being faithful in the way that you handle us. We pray for those in our congregation who are sick and who've been struggling with a number of long-term uh, illnesses or maladies. Think of Barb today and Karen and Manny and uh, Karen Weatherby. And Lord, we, we thank you for the fact that we can call on you to work alongside of the medical professionals and to work beyond through the miraculous. And now we ask that you give us insight into your word so that we wouldn't just go through the tradition, but we'd really think, and if you're using this even to speak to us, that you would convince, convict, nudge, push, move us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 12th, back in 1961, a Russian cosmonaut named Yuri Gargarin became the first human being to travel into space and to orbit the Earth. He orbited for one full revolution. This was received as a blow to the American psyche because the American Space Initiative lost this leg of the space race. And that blow to the psyche was deepened when reports began to circulate that during that flight, Mr. Gargarin had made this comment, I don't see any God up here. Now, it turns out that the official transcript from that mission never records him saying those specific words. It is more likely that Soviet Chairman Nikita Khrushchev, who was an atheist and who often wanted to promote his cause, uh, claimed these words and put them in Gagarin's mouth. And he was reported to have said in one of his speeches, Gagarin flew into space but didn't see any god up there. In response to that claim, the noted British author and professor C.S. Lewis wrote a very short piece called The Seeing Eye. And it was printed years later in a collection of short essays. But this is what he wrote in that essay. To look for him as one looks within the framework which he himself invented is nonsense. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. And then he concluded that thought with this statement, much depends on the seeing eye. Now what he meant by that was that some have eyes to see and therefore are open for what they might find and others have determined beforehand that even if the evidence was all laid out, they will not see what you want them to see. And he's saying it, it takes a heart that's prepared, it takes an eye, a mind that's open to God to see the fingerprints of God in this world. This morning, we're in the second week of our Christmas Interruptions series, and we're going to turn our focus toward Mary and her response to the message that comes from the angel Gabriel. In Mary, we see a heart that discerns what God is doing, even when others cannot, and even when she doesn't understand where all of this is going to lead and how all of this will work out. So our topic this morning is favor with God. And there's a question that's kind of lingering behind this message that I can't fully answer this morning. 
but we're going to begin to dive into it anyway. What does it mean to have favor with God? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What are, what are the signs that one has favor with God? It's actually a bigger topic than I realized. There are about 175 references to this concept of people seeking the favor of God or experiencing the favor of God or favoring something in, in life. But here's, here's the, the big idea that I've narrowed it down to this morning. God's interruptions will stretch your faith and shower you with his favor. In other words, when God interrupts your life, he will stretch your faith, but in the process, he will also shower you with his favor. I'd like to walk you through four discoveries about this concept of favor with God. Here's the first one. You can be favored, but troubled at the same time. Favored, but troubled. Uh, look at the way this part of the story unfolds. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. What an odd pairing of sentences. Luke specifically tells us that the angel Gabriel delivered this message to Mary. This is Gabriel, Gabriel who ministered in the presence of the Lord, who explains visions to God's people. Gabriel, who had appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament days, and then to Zechariah just a few months earlier, whom we looked at last Sunday. Gabriel tells Mary that she is highly favored and that the Lord is with her. In fact, in case we missed it, it's there twice within these three verses that I just read. Luke pairs this with the observation that Mary was greatly troubled at these words. Why would Mary be troubled? First century Israel, under the domination of the Roman Empire, was a troubling place to live in. Now add to that political reality. Visits from angels in gleaming white linen typically are troubling experiences too. How many of you had one of those this week? No, I didn't, didn't think any of us would. But every time an angel shows up, people are terrified. We're not used to seeing these angelic beings with such a bright countenance that it causes people to draw back. Rabbinic theologians joke that the name Gabriel means clothed in white linen. It doesn't really, but... It just seems that they're always showing up that way. Bearing the Savior of the world was a troubling assignment. And agreeing to bear God's child without knowing that Joseph was on board meant that this was also a troubling relational complication for Mary. That the angel had not explained how all of this would work together, how all this would work out, also made this a troubling realization for her. Now, we think about it. If you put yourself in Mary's shoes, Mary should have been troubled. I think this is the statement from Mary that seems real to us. She's troubled at everything that's being presented to her. She should have been troubled about this visit and this assignment. She should have been troubled as she wondered about what this greeting meant for her life. 
She should have been troubled over bringing God's son into a dangerous world. She should have been troubled about all of the complications that would fall upon her within weeks. Knowing that she was troubled strips away all of the halos from the Christmas cards that we pass around of Mary, and it strips away all the halos on the artwork in the Louvre. She's real, and this was not easy. And knowing that she was troubled humanizes Mary in our evaluation of her. You and I can have the Lord's favor and still be troubled in this world. Didn't Jesus warn us? In this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. This observation goes against the way that we most often think of God's favor. We tend to think, if God is with us, then everything will work out smoothly. That life will be absent of pain, absent of hardship, absent of stress. And I'm sorry, but sometimes people have been sold that that's what Christianity is really all about. That if you put your faith in Jesus, everything will work out the way that you hope for and the way that you want. But that's not reality. In fact, Christians often assume wrongly that something is wrong with you spiritually if you are experiencing hard times or if you are deeply troubled about the events of your life. I would like to submit to you a principle which runs contrary to that line of thinking. Here it is. When you stand in the Lord's favor, you are very likely to be troubled. And I'd like to explain why that's true. When you are in the midst of God's favor, it is very likely that something is going to trouble you very soon. Think of Gideon in the Old Testament. An angel appears to him and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon, who's a farmer at this point, is now being told, you're going to be the general to lead thousands of people into battle. He looks over his shoulder and says, who are you talking to? He has no idea that God has singled him out for this moment. Think of Moses at the burning bush. He's run away. He wants nothing to do with Egypt. He's never going back in his mind. He is a shepherd. God meets him at this burning bush, and he says, uh, here am I, God. Send my brother Aaron. <laughs> There's, he's troubled by this assignment. He doesn't want to go back and face what's going on in Egypt. Most often, when we experience God's favor, he has an assignment at hand. And the Lord is always looking for people whom he can trust in troubling places. And one of the most amazing things about this young woman named Mary, probably still a teenager, is that he found she was amazingly reliable and trustworthy with the greatest assignment of all. Again, here's the idea. God's interruptions will stretch your faith and shower you with his favor at the same time. Here's a second observation. You can be favored when your world turns upside down. We go back to verse 30. The angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And then he adds, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. When we first hear those words, we say, Oh, yes, that's part of the Christmas story. Uh-huh, I expected that was coming. She didn't. That's the whole point. She had no idea that that challenge was going to come out of the mouth of the angel that day. 
From all indications, Mary led, had led a quiet and unassuming life until this point. She lived in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town with a hilly landscape in the region of Galilee. These hills lay in the shadow of, some, of, of a small mountain range that was west of the Sea of Galilee. And the town was so small, the scholars say, the historians say, that in that time it only housed a few dozen families. You know what that means? It's easy to hide and to get lost in a large crowd or in a large town. It's easy to get lost and feel like you're just a number in a city. But in a small town, everybody knows your name. Everybody knows your business. When there are so few families that there are just a few houses that dot the landscape, there's no hiding in a place like Nazareth for somebody like Mary. This means that Mary was favored, but she had a whole lot of explaining to do. Think of it. How on earth would she tell her parents? Hi, Mom, hi, Dad. Sit down, please. You're not going to believe this. I'm not really sure that I do yet, but an angel came to me and appeared to me. An angel came and appeared to you. Okay, Mary, sure, right. Yes, and the angel told me that uh, I'm going to have a son. Wait a minute, can we back up a little bit? Will you say that again? Can you imagine this scene playing out in your living room? Yes, I'm going to have a son. I'm supposed to give him the name Jesus. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the Messiah. And peace is going to come to everybody. Okay, Mary, you got our attention. Mom's watching from that point. Soon there'll be a missed cycle. And mom's going to be scratching her head and wondering, wait a minute. What was she talking about that one crazy day when she said she saw an angel? And then after a little while, there's going to be some growth and what we call the baby bump will start to rise. Now think of this. All of the people who study that period of time tell us that Jewish girls in that era were often betrothed somewhere in the years 13, 14, 15 years old. That didn't mean they were getting married right away. Betrothal was a, a formal process, at least a year long, sometimes longer. And they were often betrothed to a man that was 8, 10, 12 years older than them who was setting up his career. And so the wedding wouldn't commence until his career was sort of moving along and until dad had built a room on the house where they would live in this extended room. So dad had some control in the factor of when this marriage would finally be consummated because he could drag out the hammer and nails and carpentry process as long as he wanted until there was a place for them to live. So she was going to be living with Joseph soon right there in Nazareth in an attachment to dad's house. And how would she explain this to Joseph? How do you tell the guy <clears throat> that you're engaged to that you're going to have a child and it's somebody else's child, but you still want him to marry you? And oh, by, by the way, this child is actually God's child. <clears throat> and we know that she was trying to explain that before the angel showed up in Joseph's dream because Matthew tells us that Joseph, being a righteous man, wanted to put her away quietly and divorce her. It was that much of a legal contract that had already been entered. It would be a formal divorce. It would be a black mark on her record. And 
the whole community would know. And Joseph was trying to figure out a way to untangle himself without causing undue shame to Mary or to her family. Fortunately for Mary, the angel did show up in Joseph's dream. And Joseph became convinced because what he heard in that dream was very similar and supported what Mary had been told when the angel came to her. God's interruptions will stretch your faith, even while God showers you with his favor. So here's Mary experiencing God's favor, bearing a child who is God's own child inside of her womb, but she's going through this external turmoil all around her. Go beyond parents and Joseph. Just imagine what the neighbors do with that story. That leads to the third observation. The first is you can be favored and yet still be troubled. The second is you can be favored by God and yet have your whole world turned upside down. Here's the third. God's favor often leads to an assignment. If God is showering his favor on you, there's very often something that he is preparing you for, equipping you for, and leading you toward. So again, we go back to partway through verse 30, and we'll take it a little bit farther. Do not be afraid, Mary, the angel says. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I once heard General Colin Powell make this statement that's probably familiar to many people who have been in the military. The only reward for a job well done is the next assignment. A lot of, a lot of times that's the way that God works too. The reward for a job well done is that he's actually using that to prepare you for whatever comes next. From all indications, Mary had been a faithful and God-fearing person. We don't know a lot about Mary, but there are a number of clues that are dropped in the Gospels. For instance, here in Luke, she doesn't question who God is when the angel begins to speak to her. She knows internally this is an angel who represents the creator God, the living God who has walked with her forefathers through all the centuries. And she never questions. She was not thrown off by the Old Testament names that are used here like the Most High. One of the titles that God had revealed in the Old Testament was this name in Hebrew, El Elyon, which means God Most High. It meant that the Creator God was higher than any other celestial being. So if you encountered an angel, remember that God is higher still. Or if you encountered people from other nations who create their own gods and they have idols that represent them, God is greater still. He is greater than all the gods. He is greater than every, everyone else in the entire created order. El Elyon is the, the name that the angel uses. God most high. On behalf of the Lord himself, Gabriel then called Mary to an assignment. It's spelled out in two simple statements. The first you will conceive and give birth to a son. I would imagine she's saying, I didn't see that one coming. And then he says, you're to call him Jesus. Okay? 
Maybe her mind is doing a quick calculation about the name of Jesus. What does it mean? Wasn't that uncommon? It's a derivative of Joshua. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is our salvation. So there's some symbolic value. But then the rest of the titles and the rest of the message comes in and it dawns on her. She was going to bring the very son of the living God into the world. This was her assignment. You may be misunderstood when you take on the Lord's assignments. Like with Mary, your priorities will change. And some people won't understand the changes that they see in you. Your values will change. And those values may clash with the values of others in your life. You will not only start to show up for church every possible Sunday you can get there, you'll end up joining a small group because you want to know more and because your hunger gets stoked and, and God drives you to, to want to participate and belong to the community more. At some point, you will get baptized and go public with your faith and some of your friends will say, why are you doing that? It seems a little extreme. When did you get extreme in your faith? It seems a little crazy to me. Some of you are smiling. You've had those conversations. Or you'll find this urge to serve in roles in the church that require effort, responsibility, or leadership. Force you to get up earlier on a Sunday morning and prepare for somebody else. And other people will look at you and say, where, did, where does that drive come from? I don't get that. And some of your friends will start to notice the changes that are happening. Are you, as you are being drawn closer and closer to the center of what God is doing, and they may confront you over it. Some will want to come along with you, but some will push away because of it. But make no mistake about this. The Lord's people keep looking for the next assignment. Here's that oxymoronic truth about us. We fear whatever the next assignment is, but as the Lord is more and more drawing you closer and closer to, your, to his heart, we're actually looking for the next assignment, saying, God, when are you taking me on the next adventure? When are you going to use me again now like you did back then? And remember, whatever that high watermark is, that memory comes back. Isn't that true of you? True of me? I think so. All this leads to a question. What prompts God's favor? Verse 38, Mary responds to the angel and she says, I am the Lord's servant. And then she adds, may your word to me be fulfilled. And Luke write then, writes, then the angel left her. What had Mary done that would cause such favor? Now here's the troubling thing for me. Luke doesn't directly answer that question but he does drop a number of clues that begin to push us in that direction. For instance, we observe that Mary had faith that valued God's spoken word over the tradition of her times. Please don't let our familiarity with the Christmas narratives here in the Gospels cause us to gloss over how groundbreaking this information really is. 
Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And Mary didn't run away. Mary didn't stop listening and say, not me, not my life. This doesn't fit my schedule or my priorities. And she didn't reject this message. The amazing thing is she embraced it. Why is this a big deal? Let me explain to you why I think it's a big deal. Some of you will recognize the name Jeff Jacoby, columnist for the Boston Globe. I've been reading Jeff's column for several years. From a political perspective, Jacoby is the Globe's lone conservative columnist. From a religious perspective, Jacoby is a Jew, and he often speaks from his religious viewpoint. In addition to his weekly column, the Globe also publishes an email newsletter for those who subscribe to it called Arguable with Jeff Jacoby. And I've been subscribing to his newsletter for a number of times. I've actually written back and forth with him. I find him a, an amazing character. And he takes on a number of tough topics that the Globe won't necessarily print in your daily newspaper, where he wants to explore beyond that. On November 5th of this year, in his arguable newsletter, Jacoby wrote about Jews who believe in Jesus. Now, the context was important. The context had to do with events that had just taken place with the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Do you remember that? We're not that far away from that. And there are a number of people who were mowed down mercilessly by one gunman. And the whole world was just shocked and stunned by that. In the column, he praised Vice President Mike Pence for promising that justice would be, quote, swift and sincere. But then he had very strong criticism when one of Pence's staffers invited a Messianic rabbi in Grand Rapids, where Pence was campaigning at the time, to pray for the victims in Pittsburgh. Sounds okay so far, doesn't it? But there was a huge error that, that he made. It turns out that this rabbi was not only a Messianic rabbi, in other words, a rabbi who believes in Jesus, but he also had been defrocked by his own Messianic community. So this is a very controversial guy. The rabbi, Lauren Jacobs, began his prayer this way, quote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, fine so far, right? God and Father of my Lord and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah, and my God and Father too. And Jacoby quoted that, and then went on to explain why the entire Jewish community in Pittsburgh was deeply offended. This is just one paragraph that he wrote in a much larger column. Quote, Christianity is by definition the belief that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. So, good, so far so good, right? Judaism unequivocally rejects that claim and always has. Even Jews who know nothing else about their religious heritage know that they aren't Christians. Messianic Jews, on the other hand, believe in Christ. They're Christians. In calling themselves Jews, they are sailing under a false flag. However friendly and devout and Jewish they may be, they are not part of the Jewish community. And the, argue, the, the column went on again and again and again, basically to say, once a Jew who becomes a Christian, by most Jewish people, that person is no longer considered to be a Jew. Let me let that hang there for a minute. And I want to bring you back to our discussion about Mary's faith. Here's her attitude 
when she hears the angel say that she will bear the Messiah, give him the name Jesus, and that this is going to be a miraculous birth through the Holy Spirit. Her attitude is one of humility. I am the Lord's servant. And her acceptance follows that attitude. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, she's saying, I trust that this is the word of God and I treasure that above all else. Mary's faith in that moment is both essential and exemplary. Perhaps Mary was familiar with God's promise to Eve that occurs all the way back in Genesis 3.15. There in the midst of the curse, God is speaking to the evil one in the body of the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and then he switches pronouns from plural to singular and says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So here, all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God is sowing the seeds of how he's going to rescue the world from the problem of sin. That a child will come from the line of Eve and that child will crush the head of the evil one, breaking the power of sin and death. But in the process, that child will be struck. This is the first very veiled reference to the gospel. It's a reference to the cross of Christ. Mary didn't know when that would happen, how that would happen. Just as Eve didn't know when that would happen and how that would happen. Large numbers of Jewish people through the ages began to look for the Messiah. And we see clues that are dropped in the gospel scenes. For instance, when Joseph and Mary bring their eight-day-old Jesus to the temple to have him dedicated, there's an old prophet named Simeon who's waiting in the wings, and the Spirit of God whispers to him, this is the one. And he intercepts Joseph and Mary on the steps of the temple, and he starts speaking prophetically about who this child is, and he says, now I can die because I've seen the one who was to come. And there were people like Simeon in all those ages looking for the signs of what God was doing and responding in faith when that moment came. It wasn't just dependent upon whether Mary saw an angel or not. There were others. And Jews were the first people to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, I want to state this fairly. Mr. Jacoby clearly states in the same article that he has great appreciation for Christians. And he especially states his appreciation for evangelical Christians who believe in Jesus and even their desire to pray for their Jewish friends that they'd all come to know our gospel. He says, I welcome all of that. I think it's a good thing. And he's a good guy. But his article reveals to us just how difficult it really is today for Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God because there's so much cultural weight and history and identification that says, if you do that, you're no longer one of us. I spoke to a man this morning who was in the first service. And he said, you know, I, I've kind of forgotten all that, but I remember when I first became a Christian. Fortunately, I had a, an older brother who'd come to Christ first. But my dad wrote us off, and he said, you're no longer one of us. So that was painful. But my dad came around, but it took years. 
for that to be healed. Now, look again at Mary and the statements that she's making here. She's not saying this in the midst of a Christian identifying community. She's the first one who gets it. The first one who says, okay, Lord, I trust your word over everything else. And this makes Mary's posture of faith even more commendable. Without a Jewish woman like Mary, Christians would not exist. There needed to be somebody who would say, Lord, I open my heart to your plan. May it be to me as you have said. Contrary to Jeff Jacoby's view, Christian faith started as a movement of Jewish people within a Jewish community. Jews for Jesus and other Messianic fellowships are not simply new inventions. They're restoring part of the heartbeat of the original followers of Jesus who were sent first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world. And they're recapturing that early heartbeat of first century Christianity. So let me conclude with this question. What characteristics can we see here that either fit or prompt favor with God? I think there are three. The first is faith. Mary has the capacity to believe. She may only be a teenager, but what an amazing teenager. And she set the world on fire with that simple statement. Second, we see an attitude of humility. I am the Lord's servant, she says. And third, we see an acceptance of his assignments. May your word to me be fulfilled. I think these are signs that God is looking for in all of us. God is constantly looking for people who will take on the next assignment. He wants to know that we believe him and we take him at his word, that we have faith. He wants to know that we have humility, that we see ourselves as his servants. And he wants to know that we will accept assignments where we live within that oxymoronic tension of fearing whatever God has next, but at the same time wishing that he'd invite us to be in the next move. And I don't know know about you, but I find I'm right in that same vein. Sometimes not wanting God to interrupt my life because I think I've got it all figured out right now and it's comfortable. But knowing full well that when he interrupts, his grace also comes in, his favor comes in, in new measures. And at the same time, the risk-taking side of me wants to say, God, whatever you've got next, I'm on board. I think that's what he wants from all of us. And I think Mary shows us the way. God's interruptions will stretch your faith and shower you with his favor. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for filling us with wonder more than 2,000 years later at the way that you've worked out this plan, at the marvelous faith that we see here in Mary. Let us learn from her. Let us emulate what we see in her. Let us respond to you with open hearts. I pray that every day and every week that we meet here, there will be times when you whisper to some of us, 
I want you to do this next. Or you will nudge us and move us in a new direction. But that you will keep our hearts humble and pliable and open to being used by you. Because when we are open to being used by you, we find your favor there. And we find that you are a God who includes in your work. Sometimes in the little things, sometimes in the harder things that the little ones prepare us for. But Lord, we respond to you this morning by saying along with Mary, may your words be fulfilled in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Hey, I was glad that Christy mentioned this earlier, but, uh, you know, let's pray over these cards. Pray who God would lead you to invite. Let's fill this place up on Christmas Eve. There are a lot of people in this world who are still looking for a place to go. They won't know to come unless you tell them why you come and you invite them to come along with you. But let's just see what happens. And I'm going to call on our ushers, and uh, this is the time when we get to continue to celebrate our God through our tithes and offerings. Thank you for those of you who give in whatever way you do, whether electronically or here in person. And we've got one final song that we're going to sing. And uh, look forward to seeing you next Sunday.